0: Going Postal Publishing, The Going Postal Cast, and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration. The serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostalpublishing.com or email him at goingpostpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that... Go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Chapter 19. Jason Rangel's last day in Niagara was an emotional one. He was already emotional after what had happened to his parents. It was hard not to be. They were murdered and he'd been in the same room with them when it happened. On top of that, He was also emotional because he was trying to come to grips with his situation. He'd been arrested and formally charged with five murders. How can they think it was me, he thought to himself on more than one occasion. I would never do that to anyone. Not the Normans, and certainly not Mom and Dad. The cops didn't believe him. He was certain of that. He had told them everything that had happened on multiple occasions, never changing his story, and yet they didn't believe him. He didn't know much about police work but he knew that liars usually change their stories, especially when presented with stressful situations. He was under an immense amount of stress and Thompson hadn't made it any easier. Yet he stuck with his story for one reason. It was the truth. No matter how ridiculous it all sounded, even in his own mind, he kept with the story. But could he blame Thompson for not believing his story? Probably not. If somebody had told him, anybody, that a man that was really more of a monster than a man... Had killed his parents, he wouldn't likely have believed them either, no matter how honest of a person he or she was. There was no logical reason for anybody to believe in monsters. Hell, he hadn't believed in such things until his parents had been brutally murdered, the killer had been stabbed and pushed down the stairs, had survived, and nearly sliced through a window using nothing more than his fingernails. Now he believed, even when nobody else did. He didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't like his position. He was being held against his will. The frustration of helplessness was bringing back his old friend named Anger. He wanted to yell out, hit things, and destroy whatever was in his way until somebody listened to him. He knew that wasn't the way to go about things, but found it to be a very tempting idea. He couldn't allow himself to lose control. He had to get a hold of his temper at all costs. From this point until the trial, if there were a trial, He would need to be on his best behavior. Everything he did from this point on was going to be studied under a microscope, literally, as they built a case against him. He knew that getting out of this was going to be a tall enough task without making matters worse for himself. Control of his emotions was the key. Before leaving Niagara, Jason met his court-appointed lawyer for the first time. He was less than impressed. Attorney Ben Skye came to see him shortly after 10 that morning. He looked the part dressed in a suit and tie, but emotionally was as far away from true representation as a bull in the ocean. "'Let's get this thing over with,' Ben said, sitting down across from Jason. "'I'm your court-appointed attorney.' They shook hands. "'I'm Ben Skies.' Jason told Ben everything that happened the night before. He told him everything that he'd told Randy Thompson, and everything that had happened since his arrival in jail. Ben didn't look at him as he spoke. His eyes gazed off towards the far wall. His attention seemed to be on anything but Jason. Would you look at me, Jason said, demanding Ben's attention. His voice came out as nothing more than a croak, but he was sure Ben heard him. Ben glanced his way, and then returned to studying the walls again. Why don't you look at me? Ben didn't say anything for a long time. He remained quiet, continuing to act as if he hadn't heard anything. Finally, after he seemed to study every crack in the brick wall, he turned and asked, I'm sorry, but were you talking to me? Jason could feel his anger starting to rise up in him once more. It was gaining strength, ready to take over at a moment's notice. Jason bit down on his lip, refraining from allowing his temper to get the best of him. He tasted the coppery flavor of his own blood as his tea sliced through the skin in his lip. Hey, you're bleeding, Ben pointed out. No, really, was what he wanted to say, but he stayed focused on containing his anger and the taste of blood. There was so much that he wanted to do to this man at that moment, but knew that he couldn't. He needed to remain on his best behavior. I want to know why you're not paying me any attention, Jason said, struggling to get his words out. His throat burned with every word. I've watched you study the cracks in these walls. I thought you were supposed to be paying attention to me, Ben laughed. It wasn't a small chuckle, as if he'd just remembered something funny that somebody had told him. This was an all-out laugh as if he were watching a George Carlin stand-up routine. "'What's so goddamn funny?' Jason asked. "'You don't get it, do you?' Ben asked, looking serious for the first time since he'd entered the room. "'This is a slam-dunk case. They have you buried alive and there's no help of digging you out. You'll be lucky to have the jury out for more than twenty minutes on this one. And that's if I give you the best performance of my career. I'm sorry, but that's just not going to happen when I'm seeing you as a court-appointed attorney.' I reserve those performances for paying customers. You can leave, Jason said, forcing the words out. I'll be looking for a different lawyer. Suit yourself, Ben said, pompously standing up. Let me give you a little bit of advice. If I were you, I'd plead guilty and save the taxpayers some money. That's the best thing you can do right now. They have you dead to rights. You're better off just pleading guilty and getting it over with show some dignity. Nobody will believe that story. You'll never get a jury to believe that a monster killed your parents, then tried to kill you. Out, Jason croaked. He tried to stand, but his feet were cuffed to a bar in the floor. He pointed his arms, showing the direction he wanted the man to go. Suit yourself, Ben said, getting up from the seat. You go right ahead and get somebody else. Nobody will give you a serious effort. You're screwed. As I said, you should just accept it and plead guilty. I'm innocent, Jason shouted. All of the hoarseness disappeared from his voice. The door to the conference room opened and two officers entered. They walked straight towards him, one of them pulling their gun on him. I'm innocent, you piece of shit. The monster killed them. He would have killed me. He didn't finish his sentence. The butt of the officer's gun came down, catching Jason on the cheek. He fell to the ground, twisting his legs in the cuffs. The back of his head slammed against the floor. His vision went hazy. He tried to pick his head back up, but it was no use. The next hour was a haze. It took that long for his vision to return to normal. Despite that, he still didn't feel quite right. He thought that he might have had a concussion, or some other head injury. As he lied on his mattress trying to get his bearings. He had the time to think about everything that was happening. It could have been the head injury toying with his emotions, or maybe not. But he found himself to be overwhelmed with sadness. His parents were gone. There was little he could do about it. That didn't change what he felt. He hated himself. He hated himself for what had happened between his parents and him before their deaths. That fight, the real last conversation he'd had with them, played over and over again in his mind. The fight had been over what he'd done to Nathan Paulson, an act he didn't regret, but it hadn't stopped there. He fought Nathan Paulson, putting him in the hospital because of what he'd done to Allison Rouse. Nathan hit her. He had it coming, but they hadn't understood that. They gave their opinion on the subject, and he got angry over it. He let his anger get the best of him, resulting in the fight. "'I hate both of you,' he'd said. "'He'd been so stupid.' Of course he hadn't really hated them. Sometimes I think it would be better if I didn't have to deal with either one of you anymore. Why would he say such horrible words? What was wrong with him? His father had tried putting a stop to it. He'd had the sense to say, You should be careful what you wish for. You should never say things like that when you're angry. His dad had the sense to try ending the fight before it got out of hand, despite what he'd said. He should have stopped there. He should have left well enough alone. Had he done that? Of course not. He'd seen it as an opportunity to go for the jugular. Funny how that analogy played out, seeing as his father died because his throat had been ripped out, jugular and all. He should have said he was sorry. Instead, he'd said, I mean every word of it. Now his mother and father were dead. To make matters worse, their bodies had disappeared. He hoped that wasn't true. He held on to the slim hope that the cop had been lying to him, trying to get him to admit to the crime. If that was the case, it was in bad taste. The door to his cell opened again. The same two officers that had intervened when he'd lost his temper with the lawyer were back. They had shackles and a nightstick. They meant business. He didn't put up a fight. He had no fight left in him. He allowed himself to be shackled. He had cuffs on his arms and legs with a chain running up the front from the legs to the arms. Once he was secured, he knew that there was no chance of him going anywhere. Where are you taking me? Jason asked, his voice almost a whisper. He already had a good idea what the answer was. You can't stay here forever, one of the cops said. You're going to your new home in Marinette until your trial. Thirty minutes later, he found himself chained to the seat of a bus. He was alone, with the exception of a driver and a guard, as the bus made a slow trip through Niagara. He looked out the barred windows, watching as the town passed by. He saw every house and every person. He saw the faces on the people. They watched him, judged him, as the bus passed by. He hated them for judging him. He hated them because it wasn't their parents that were dead. They hadn't lost anybody. Someday they would. Maybe the monster would get them as well. Then they'd know what he was going through. You can all go to hell, he said under his breath as the bus passed the city limits, leaving Niagara behind. Chapter 20 Jason Rangel had been out of Niagara for only one week. Already things were looking better. Chief of Police Randy Thompson had wondered what removing Jason from Niagara would mean. He'd wondered if the murders would continue. Or if they disappear, fortunately for him and everybody else in Niagara, it was the latter. Besides the three missing police officers on the night of the Wrangle murders, there had been no sign that another killer was still at large. Randy knew that there had to be a second killer, an accomplice that helped Jason with the murders of his parents. But he had evidently skipped town. He made three police officers disappear along with the Wrangles' bodies, but that was the last thing he did before riding off into the sunset. Randy poured over the evidence as he sat at his desk. Everything was here that he needed to put Jason away. Every note, every detail, and every photo from the multiple crime scenes were here. It was all like a giant puzzle being put together. Some of the pieces were motive. Jason had that. As it would turn out, the Wrangles had a rather large life insurance policy worth nearly $200,000. A larger piece of the puzzle was means. Jason certainly had that. Multiple people had come forward telling detectives about a Jason Wrangle that had little control over his anger. The boy was a ticking time bomb. The last piece of the puzzle, the largest piece by far, and the only one missing, was the murder weapon. They had the scissors covered in blood. The DNA results on that blood were on the way. They'd arrive in the office at any moment. All of this information was vital for their case. Michael Dorr, Marinette County Prosecutor, was awaiting every possible detail. He was building up his case piece by piece, counting on Randy to deliver the information. He'd place Randy in charge of the case, and Randy wasn't about to let him down. This was the most important case in Niagara's history. Hell, this was probably the most important case in Marinette County history. The prosecuting attorney was treating it as such, giving him all the control he needed to get the job done. A knock at the door pulled Randy from his thoughts. Come in, Randy said. The door opened and Brad Collinback entered carrying a manila envelope tucked between his right elbow and side. That's it. This was the last piece of the puzzle, the item that he'd been waiting for. These were the DNA results on the scissors that he suspected that Jason had used to murder his parents. He couldn't wait. He needed that envelope. May I please have that? Randy asked, standing up and extending both hands. He thought that he must look like a beggar, wanting his next handout. He didn't really care what he looked like. All he cared about was getting those results and proving himself right. He snatched the envelope from Brad just as he extended it. I'm guessing that's the DNA results you've been waiting for, Brad said. No, these are the naked pictures of your mom that I've been waiting for, he said in his mind. He wanted to say that just to show Brad how stupid his question was. He wasn't going to do that, however. His job came with a certain amount of professionalism. He needed to keep up appearances and play the part whenever possible, even if it meant biting back when it came time to show somebody how stupid they really were. Yes, Brad, these are the DNA results, he said calmly. This will make or break the case. Open it, then, Brad said. Do you mind if I have a look? Randy didn't answer him. He stared at the envelope in his hands, suddenly afraid to open it. He was afraid of what the results might be. What if he was wrong? What if the results came back and there was a different person involved? He didn't want to think of what might happen if that were true. He could imagine the media circus that would follow when he was forced to release Jason Rangel from the Marinette County Jail. Everybody that had counted on him to solve this case would all turn their backs on him. He would lose his job and would have to move far away to save himself from the shame. Are you going to open it? Brad asked impatiently. I'm getting to it, Randy snapped back. Brad took a step back, as if he'd just been shoved. Randy spoke again, more calmly this time. I'm opening it. He could sit there all day, debating what he should do. It wouldn't change a damn thing. The results within the envelope wouldn't change, whether he waited or not. He bent the metal clasps that held the envelope closed and slowly opened the flap. He slid his right hand inside and felt the paper between his fingers. His heart racing, he slowly lifted the single sheet of paper out. He held it against his chest for a few moments, taken in slow, deep breaths. When he knew he was prepared, he moved the paper in front of him. He looked down at the sheet, staring at the results. Randy Thompson wasn't exactly sure how DNA matching worked. All he knew was he'd supplied blood samples of both Mary and Gary Rangel. They were supposed to take the DNA from the blood and compare those results to the blood found on the scissors. What he was now looking at was the genetic fingerprint of all three samples. He never could make sense of any of this. Instead, he looked at the notes at the bottom of the page. There were two notes. One was in the same typeface as the rest of the report, while the other was handwritten. He read the type note first. It read, Sample 1, Gary Rangel, is a 97.9% match to the DNA found in sample 3, Scissors. Sample 2, Mary Wrangell, is a 96.7% match to the DNA found in Sample 3, Scissors. This is great, Randy thought, pumping his fists into the air with the report still clutched in his hand. He imagined that he looked like a quarterback that had just thrown the game-winning touchdown. Must be good, Brad said, a smile spreading on his face. 97.9, Randy said. That's a good percentage. That's for the dad. 96.7 on the mother. Both of their DNA was on the scissors. We have them. Even through the excitement of having Jason Wrangle right where he wanted him, he remembered the handwritten note. He put the paper back in front of him, looking at the scrawled note below the results he'd already read. I need to speak to you. Please call me at 920-555-4578. Randy stared at the note for a long time. He didn't know what to make of it. Why did the DNA expert want to speak to him? Was there a problem with the tests? You'll have to excuse me, Randy said, motioning for Brad to leave. Boy, what an attitude change, Brad said. One second you're on cloud nine, and the next you're acting like the bloody world's coming to an end. I said, get out! The look on Brad's face was awful. He looked terrified of him. Randy didn't care. Brad turned and left, leaving Randy all alone. He picked up the telephone from its cradle and dialed the number written on the note. He waited. One ring. Two rings. A woman answered on the third ring. DNA, was how she answered. No name. No company's name. Just DNA. Hello. My name is Randy Thompson. I'm the chief of police in Niagara. You wanted to speak with me? Yes, the woman said, sounding excited. I've been expecting your call. You're calling in reference to the results I mailed you. Yes, yes. I just got them five minutes ago, Randy said. Of course you did, she said. Otherwise you wouldn't have known how to contact me. I'm surprised you waited this long. What do you have for me? Randy asked. Well, as you can tell, I found two different DNA profiles in the sample you provided. I had to really work my magic to get samples of two DNA profiles because of the amount of blood on the blade that was mixed. We had nearly perfect matches to that of the deceased male and the deceased female. It's the not-so-perfect part that I'm worried about. How so? There's a third DNA profile on the weapon, mixed with both samples. I had a hell of a time with that. I had a difficult time distinguishing if there really was other DNA or if this was some kind of mutation. Mutation? Yes, she continued, sounding as if she were excited. To be perfectly honest, I ran three different samples at three different times. I'll use the male as an example. The first time I ran it, the results came back as slightly over 99% match. The second time, it came in at about 98.5. The third is what you're likely holding in your hand. The results were similar with the female. How is this important? Randy asked. How is this, uh, mutation going to affect my case? It shouldn't have any adverse effects on your case, she said. Results that high should easily help you distinguish guilt or innocence based on the circumstances. I just wanted to share this with you in case something changes. What would change? Randy asked. He didn't like where this was going. She had the idea in her head that something was happening. The blood is mutating into something else she said. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. This isn't something they teach you about in textbooks. The strangest thing is what it is turning into isn't quite human. It has many similar characteristics, yet there are differences. These are the differences that you might find between man and ape. They're similar, yet they're different species. Yet these seem to have characteristics all their own. They're not human, yet they're not ape." This is something else completely, something different. Why are you telling me all of this if it won't change my case? I'm going to make one thing very clear, she said stiffly. I do not want to go on the stand for this. I could be bad for your case, cause I'll do nothing but confuse the jury. I have to send these results to whatever attorney the suspect will have as well. "'Any good defense attorney will try to place doubt in the jury's minds "'by making their own assumptions as to what the 2% means,' she paused. "'Don't call me to the stand unless you really need me. "'Do you understand?' "'Yes,' Randy said. "'But he was far from understanding what was going on. "'This case continued becoming stranger as every moment passed. "'What do you think this 2% means?' "'I can't be certain,' she said. But it's my opinion that the blood is somehow being transformed by this other DNA. It's as if it's being mutated into something else altogether. It's no different than what cancer cells do. But you're certain that the samples belong to Mary and Gary Wrangle? Yes. That's all I need to know, he said. Thank you. He paused, realizing that he didn't even know her name. Dr. Margaret Zucker, she said, then abruptly hung up. Randy hung up his phone, although he never realized he'd done so. His mind was preoccupied with all of the new information that he'd just been given. So, he had Jason for the murder of his parents. What about the Normans? Why wasn't there DNA on the scissors as well? Had he cleaned the scissors before killing his parents? Had there been a second weapon that the accomplice had used? His mind returned to asking if Jason had been telling the truth. It seemed too far-fetched to be possible, The blood on the weapon belonged to his parents. He'd admitted to stabbing the killer with the scissors. His mind kept searching through possible scenarios in which Jason could have sliced out his father's throat and justified that he was stabbing the killer. That didn't explain the mother, however. Maybe Jason really did have some form of mental instability in which he really did believe that he had stabbed a man that wasn't his father, all the while he was murdering his own parents. Although there were large enough holes in his theory that he could drive a truck through it, He still thought it wasn't out of the realm of possibility. And what did she mean about mutating blood? That seemed to be the biggest mystery of all. He found it difficult to wrap his mind around it when the woman who was supposed to know everything there was about this particular subject didn't know much at all. She didn't have any clue as to why the blood was mutating and becoming something different. How was he going to be able to carry on with this case when a defense attorney could see through all the holes in their case? He could go on with this, and he knew exactly why. Jason Rangel was never going to get a fair trial. The boy had already been labeled as a murderer, a label that would be difficult to remove. On top of that, because he was the primary suspect, he wasn't going to be able to claim one red cent of his parents' life insurance. That meant he had no money and wouldn't be able to pay for a lawyer on his own. That left one of two options. He would stick with the attorney that the court had appointed for him, who would likely give a half-effort because he wasn't being properly compensated, or a good lawyer would step forward and take this case pro bono. He thought that the latter was highly unlikely. Most attorneys had one thing on their minds, money. If there was little to no chance of payment, there was little to no chance of an attorney taking the case unless there were points to prove. Losing a case wasn't exactly proving a point. He didn't have any regrets about putting Jason through this trial. He had killed his parents. With that one piece of evidence, he knew he could get him for all five murders. You've been listening to the Going Postal cast. For updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub.com. Or like them at Facebook.com/slash/GoingPostalPublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012 Going Postal Publishing.